to read the first four verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God, our father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. As I besought you to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. If you'll quickly turn to chapter 6, I want to read verses 11 and 12. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So keeping the faith is the title. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another lovely day and another opportunity to fellowship with the saints. Now for a few moments as we look at these scriptures, speak to all of our hearts, open the eyes of our understanding, and once again show us the beauty and the loveliness of your word. These things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Scripture says Paul is an apostle, and this is by the commandment of God. But who who was this man that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament? The Bible teaches us that he formerly was a Pharisee. He would arrest Christians. He persecuted the body of Christ. And on one of his trips to incarcerate believers, the Lord came to him in a great light, and that humbled him to the point that when he finally began to make his way into Damascus, having lost his vision for a season. He knew that God was real, and he knew that Jesus Christ was his son. So that changed his life. That that kind of a vision can do that. And, and we, we may all have crisis moments or circumstances that, that lead us to think more about God or deeply about God. I would assume everybody in here has probably had one or two occasions where God became more real to you than he had before. Maybe there was a point in your life, maybe you went through confirmation or catechism or something, but you might have went through it just like everybody else went through it. But at a certain point or a certain stage, there was something that clicked, and you kind of realized, okay, this whole thing is real, and I need a life-saving, life-changing experience. Well, certainly this is what happened with Paul. Paul had been religious all his life. He probably never even knew that he needed to be born again, but he was. And the thing about it was he was in the forefront of the great things that you read about in the book of Acts because the second half of the book is about him and his missionary travels and his journeys. If you go through the book of Acts and just count the number of cities that are mentioned, it just staggers the mind that anybody in ancient times without a bus a car or a train could have gone to the places that he went to, either walking by horse, camel, or by boat. But he traveled a whole lot. Well, in, in one of these trips of his, he had to go to a place called Lystra, and that's where he met a young man by the name of Timothy. And Timothy, of course, was a person who was discipled by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. 
These two ladies were so important in his life that Paul in Second Timothy said, just remember how you were taught by your mother and grandmother. The scriptures that they placed inside of you hold on to those words because the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. Well, that first opportunity that Timothy and, and them uh, heard Paul, it was uh, a really, really attractive situation because he was preaching the gospel and there was a man there who was crippled, who had never walked. Paul saw that this man was believing what he was preaching. And Paul said to the man, when he realized this man believed what was being said, he said to him, stand up on, on your feet. And instantly, Acts chapter 14, the man stood up. He had strength in his legs and he was instantly healed. So presumably, Timothy's grandmother and mother were likely at that meeting because when Paul comes back into that area in chapter 16, he finally runs into Timothy and meets him personally and Timothy, having had such a wonderful experience hearing the word of God, he had lived it and had a good reputation. Now, what did this young man learn? Well, if he learned the Holy Scriptures, he learned Genesis through Malachi. He learned about God making the heavens and the earth. He learned about the flood with Noah. He didn't doubt the fact that God made Abraham into a clan and then a nation. He didn't doubt the Exodus story, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, Timothy heard that, believed it, and lived it to the point that the scripture says he had a good name for himself. And that can teach us something. When we think of our reputation in our, in our Christian life, if someone were to ask someone who knows you about your Christian life, what kind of a reputation as a Christian would you have? You know, you've, you've probably heard the people that have, you know, they've used the question, they'll say, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? See? Paul had a good reputation. Timothy had a good reputation. So Paul said to Timothy and to his family, I'd like to take this young man with me. Now that was a great opportunity. Opportunities like that don't come very often. And Timothy likely was a family man like folks around here. But if the apostle has Given you an opportunity to leave home and travel with him for X amount of days. I mean, that's an amazing thing. And Timothy waved goodbye to his family and he started off on the trip with, with Paul. But this time it wasn't Paul and Barnabas. It was Paul and Silas. So Timothy was aware of the first team, but now he's a part of the second team. And as he begins to travel with Paul, he has to enter into Paul's teaching and doctrine. He has to enter into the persecutions of Paul, the praises of Paul. And when you start with chapter 16 and go right on up to about 19, you'll see where Paul has one blessing after another, one problem after another. Scripture says Paul went to sleep one night and had a dream. And in that dream, there was somebody from Greece begging him, saying, please come over and help us. When he woke up, he realized God was talking to him and he realized they needed to go to Greece. And so he said, the Lord's telling all of us we need to go to Greece. Timothy was a part of that. When they got to Greece, they went to where some ladies were praying. And sure enough, there was a woman full of the devil that started following them. Paul was grieved in his spirit because of that. He turned and rebuked the spirit, told it to come out of the girl. The girl was healed that very hour. Because of that, a riot broke out. 
Because the people who were making money off of the woman's divination, they were angry and upset that she no longer could divine and operate in that familiar spirit. So they stirred up enough trouble where Paul and Silas ended up being beaten and then placed in jail. So, so look at what happens when you set the captives free. You make people mad, but then other people will be happy. But captives do need to be set free. Well... Timothy continued to travel with Paul. Paul had the incident where he was stoned and left for dead. There were the incidents where he preached and revival broke out. Several places, riots broke out because of his preaching. And on a couple of occasions, his friends were nearly beaten to death because they were associated with him. But eventually, Paul made his way into the area of Ephesus, and it was there where the showdown began. Now, every man or woman that, that that's doing ministry at some point in their life, they have to find one place and they have to just dig a hole, build, put, put a tent up and just stay there and fight the devil. And that's what Paul did here at Ephesus. He went there to the center of Diana worship and he stayed there at least two years preaching the gospel, but they didn't make it easy for him. Paul walked into that area in chapter 19, the first six or seven verses. He found 12 disciples. He said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? They said, we don't even know what you're talking about. We hadn't heard about any Holy Spirit. Paul said, well, how are you baptized? They said, according to John's baptism of repentance. He said, well, there's a little bit more uh, that's available now. And, And he told them they all need to be baptized in water again. And quite naturally, they were But then he laid hands on them, and the scripture says in Acts chapter 19, all 12 of them began to speak with other tongues and prophesied. Well, Paul stayed there long enough to where supernatural events began to occur. They had aprons or towels or handkerchiefs or whatever, and they prayed over them, and they took them to where sick people were, and sick people were instantly made whole. Demons left, Acts chapter 19 says. And because of these miracle signs and wonders, the name of the Lord was expanded or spread abroad, and the fame of Paul became great. Now, when all of this is going on, Timothy is a part of the team. Timothy is seeing this firsthand. He's observing this. And once you have assembled believers and people that love the Lord, you have to think about securing the future of those babes in Christ. And that's why Paul was thinking about, okay, we have these Christians now. They got to have a shepherd. They need somebody to stay here. And Paul was with them for a long time, but Paul didn't necessarily feel called to stay in one place the rest of his life. And that's why he left Titus on the island of Crete. And here in Timothy, you can see in verse number three, he asked Timothy to stay right there in Ephesus. This man had a tough job. Ephesus was a very religious place. And if somebody would have told these people that they were out of the will of God or worshiping a false God or were ignorant of who the true God was, they'd have instantly become angry. And that's what happened. So many people were giving their hearts to the Lord that the people who built statues and figurines for the goddess Diana, they said, if this man keeps leading people to Christ, it's going to cut into business. Because no one's going to buy our statues and figurines. And so they stirred up a a tumult and there was a riot again in Ephesus because a man was preaching the truth. So what does that teach? It, It teaches, number one, that Christians 
Don't get involved with prayers to idols and uh, figurines and statues. We don't use those in our prayers. We certainly don't make God in that kind of an image. The other thing it teaches us is that if if you change a mass of people to the point that it starts changing the culture, then you're going to have a whole lot of people that become angry because of the shift that is now taking place. If if paganism or heathen worship predominates in a particular district and then somebody, somebody comes and introduces Jesus Christ and they start accepting him, then people immediately begin to think we're going to lose the worship of our ancestors. We're going to lose the worship of our forefathers and so forth. And then it's going to create havoc. And it has happened in Africa. It has happened across the Far East. It has happened here in America amongst Native American Indians when Christianity has come to reservations and hundreds or thousands of them have come to know Christ. And then people began to say, well, how can you forsake the gods of our ancestors? Well, it's not about your ancestors. It's about truth. It's about what God provides, the reality of what God provides. And this is why Paul, having had Timothy with him, who has entered into all of this and knows exactly what he believes, Paul is able to say to Timothy in verse 3, I've asked you to stay as I go to Macedonia, and I'm charging you that you don't teach any other doctrine. Now, Timothy probably didn't feel worthy. But Paul had already told him, don't let anybody despise your youth, but be an example in behavior and in charity. So if there's one thing we can all do to maintain the respect that we want people to have for us, that's be an example. If, if you ever want people to stop respecting your Christian testimony, do things that aren't Christian, say things that aren't Christian, live a life consistently that's not like Christ, and people won't respect you. And I've told you, told you this over and over again. The only influence that any of us can have on anybody, and this includes in your families, the only influence you can ever have on anybody is, is dependent upon the amount of respect that they're willing to give you. If your kids don't respect you, they're not going to pay attention to anything you say to go here and out there. If, if in church, if you don't respect the preacher, it doesn't matter what he says. You just sit there, just endure the service, and then it's over with. So respect is an important thing, but Paul tells Timothy the way to obtain the respect and to command it and hold on to it, be an example. Be an example. If, if you want people to be people of faith, you make sure you're, you have confidence in God. If you want people to be people of love, you make sure that you're, you're a loving person. And, and Timothy, of course, I'm sure he probably felt unqualified for the task, but nevertheless, he was asked because he was a faithful person. I don't think Paul would have asked otherwise. So he said to him, this is why I want you in Ephesus. So don't be intimidated by the territory. Don't ever allow a bad situation to cause you to believe that, that God can't change it. It should take you back to the story of Gideon. You remember how he was threshing wheat in fear, trying to hide the uh the fruit of his labors from the Midianites who were coming and pillaging the Israelite villages and taking all of their resources. And the scripture says in, in the book of Judges that these folks were impoverished because of the Midianites. 
So Gideon was trying to have something on, on the side here. And, you know, if you're threshing wheat, you're doing it just like they still do it around the world. You're tossing it up in the air and you got it in a, in a, in a place where breeze can come by and it's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. And then you're going to try to hold on to what you can. And so he was doing that and then trying to look around the corner to make sure nobody was paying attention to what he was doing. And he's doing it real sheepishly. And then the angel comes to him and said, you man of valor, the Lord is with you. He said, you have to be kidding. You see me back here threshing wheat in fear. I've heard all of the stories about what God did way back there with Moses and all them folks. But where is he now? That's what Gideon said. Where is he now? We've heard the stories of the miracles then, but where are the stories of the miracles now? So the Lord basically through that angel says to Gideon, we're going to make you part of the narrative. So rather than you always looking back in the past, we're going to let you be part of the solution. You're going to be part of the miracle that's going to happen right now. now that's an amazing thing, considering he was an, he wasn't even believing. God could have said to him, well, I'm just going to bypass you and go to somebody else who really does believe in me. But God let that man do something great. And the spirit of God came upon him. So just because you don't feel like you're fit for a task, that doesn't mean God won't use you. And he says to Timothy, stay here. And he says, don't teach any other doctrine. Now, that implies that he has heard the right kind of doctrine in the first place. Okay? If you're told to teach no other doctrine, then you you have to know what is true in order to stay away from what is false. You have to know what's original to stay away from the other. And this is what he's telling him. You've learned what it is that I want you to teach. You've seen me in these meetings in the villages. You've heard me debating people in the synagogues. You've watched me as I've labored with my hands and sat in people's living rooms at dinner time and talked with them about the Lord. Don't say anything I wouldn't say if I wasn't there, even though I'm getting ready to leave. Don't cause these people in Ephesus to believe that because I'm leaving, that there's going to be a cessation of God's power. Don't make them depend on you. Make them depend entirely upon the presence and the anointing and the touch of God. So he says, teach no other doctrine. What did Paul believe? We know Paul believed in the supernatural birth. How do I know that? Because Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus came and was born in the fashion of man. So I know he knew of the virgin birth. We know he believed Jesus lived without sin. Because otherwise he would have never been able to describe him as as one who comes to bear our sins. He who knew no sin became our sin. We know he believed in the substitutionary role of Jesus Christ on the cross. We know he believed that Jesus died and was buried. First Corinthians 15 says that without the resurrection, there's no truth behind any of this. We know he believed in the ascension of the Lord. He said that in Ephesians because he's at the right hand of God. And we know he believed that the Lord was coming back because he kept telling us to be prepared because the coming of the Lord is near. That's all through Thessalonians. So if we have those basic principles of doctrine, then we can understand why he says to this man, don't teach any other doctrine. Now, there were a lot of doctrines available at that time. The Greeks and the Romans had beliefs. Other religions were around at the time. Hinduism, Buddhism, all of this was available. 
But he says to him, don't teach any other doctrine. And he even went so far as to tell him to give attendance to reading. Make sure you study the word of God. Make sure you read to know what it is that God is, is saying to you. And then in verse four, he says, don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies. OK, what's a fable? A fable is something that's patently untrue. But all of us as kids, we probably remember learning about Aesop's fables. Aesop was the one who taught moral truths through animal illustrations amongst the ancient Greeks. Aesop's fables. Peter says we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if, if Paul says to Timothy, don't give heed to fables, that means that there are many of them that are rampant and are out there. What kind of ancient fables would have been around? What kind of ancient tales would have been around? Well, think of Homer, the Iliad, the Siege of Troy, the Odyssey. According to the Odyssey, it took it took Odysseus some 20 years to get back after the siege of Troy to finally make it back home. Uh, there's Virgil's Aeneid, which supposedly tells the story of the foundation of Rome, going all the way back to the belief that the founders uh, were suckled by wolves and eventually grew up. And one of them was caught away into the heavens and the other one went and founded the great city of Rome. The old ancient tragedies and dramas of Euripides and Sophocles had all kinds of gods in the middle of them. But this man here says to his son in the faith, do not give heed to fables. They're not true. He says, I don't want you to take any ancient tale, be it of Mars, the god of war, or Hercules, the half God, who's son of Zeus, as well as a mortal woman, don't you take any ancient fable and make it equal to scripture and inspiration. It's impossible to do that. That's what he said. Don't give heed. So as Christians, then, when, when we look at this book, we don't ever put anything on the same level of inspiration as this book. This is the infallible word of God. The original Greek and Hebrew text the, the inerrant word of God. This book reminds us or gives us the mind of God, the will of God, the wishes of God. We learn everything we need to know about God from this book right here. And we do not need to allow a modern textbook to be equal in authority to the Bible. Now, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> well, uh, amongst all the commentaries and study Bibles that, that I have, you read those notes and it's amazing some of the things those notes will say to you. So some of the commentaries, when I'm looking up a Hebrew word or something like that, you look through Genesis. And then, of course, somewhere in the notes that that modern critical scholar who's skeptical of all ancient Jewish traditions and early Christian beliefs, they'll have something like this. Well, the Genesis one narrative was actually a poem and should not be taken as a historical fact. There really was no Adam and Eve. That's all poetry that was written to uh, just explain something that somebody kind of put together in their mind. There was no flood. Abraham was not the original patriarch of the Jewish nation. That's just what they concocted in order to give themselves some confidence about their background. You look at Exodus and, of course, they'll say that the Exodus wasn't real because the Jews were never in Egypt. I said there's never been any archaeological evidence to ever demonstrate that the Jews were in Egypt. But even if they were, 
They couldn't, there couldn't have been a, a Red Sea parting because no supernatural act can be done like that for several millions of people. So more than likely what happened, they probably crossed over on a portion of ground where the water was only ankle deep, which, which calls for even a greater miracle because the Bible says that Pharaoh and his army drowned in the Red Sea. So if you can drown that many people in ankle deep water, that's pretty good. Well, they'll say Leviticus and, and, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, they do not contain unique information about Jewish religion. They all adapted their religion from the Babylonians. And that's where their beliefs came from. And then to keep on reading, they'll say, well, no, the judges can't be right because the years don't correlate and you can't get the amount of time between Solomon's reign going all the way back to them being in the uh, wilderness period. So those can't be true. Isaiah was not written by one man. It's actually written by three different editors over a period of time. The commentators will tell you that Daniel was not written 500 years before Christ, but a 100 years before Jesus, because he already knew what had happened. And so he put it all down there. And then you come to the New Testament. And then you quickly discover with the New Testament commentaries that the virgin birth was nothing more than an incarnation myth because they were trying to mimic the ancient Greeks. They wanted a story very much like that. And Jesus certainly didn't live without sin because it's impossible for a person to be in a human body and live without sin. He couldn't have died on the cross for somebody else's sin because there's no such thing as a substitutionary death on the cross. That's just something people make up in order to alleviate their guilt so they can transfer their guilt to somebody else and put it on them. And you know there was no resurrection. That's what the commentaries will tell you. There's no way anybody can be dead for several days and then come back to life. The history in the book of Acts is incorrect. Luke is wrong. He doesn't even know the names of the right leaders. Paul didn't write Ephesians. Paul didn't write Second Thessalonians. Peter didn't write Second Peter, John didn't write the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation is just a tale about the ancient Roman Empire. Now, after you've gone through all of that through years and just studied it, you get all the way to the end of it, then you realize you don't have a gospel anymore. There's nothing to believe anymore. And so the scripture says here, neither give heed to fables because those are fables. Those are the, the imaginations of men, and they don't want to believe what is written in the inspired word of God, and they do everything they can to sow that kind of skepticism and unbelief in your heart. The only way to preserve a church, a denomination, a community, or a nation, somebody's got to teach the original. And once people slide off the foundation of the original, then it's inevitable the degeneration continues. You cannot go anywhere but down when you move away from, from the book. And if the book has us up here and we move off the foundation, the, the toboggan sled ride begins. We go down. Now, we all, I, I assume some of you probably like to read reports on archaeology and stuff like that, if you like history and stuff. But if, if you look in, in some of those magazines, sometimes you'll see these digitized computer images and they will tell you they found a spoon about six inches in the substrata of the soil 
And from that spoon and how it was situated, they were able to recreate the entire room and then the house and then the village. And then they've got all these outlines and designs and stuff that that's on there. But what you need to realize is that that is all the imagination of some man or some woman. And when you're thinking about what people are saying about this scripture and about the word of God, always remember what Paul said. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, for the casting down of every imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So when someone comes to you with something that requires you to disbelieve the scriptures, cast that imagination down. It's just a fable. It's not true. And and we've seen in the history of our own nation and in the history of our denominational churches how that has happened. Now, from time to time, I'll pull out some old magazines from a 100 years ago because I like to read what people were saying in their churches at that time in comparison with now. So I've got a stack of Concordia Lutheran monthlies. Used to be the flagship pamphlet for the Lutheran church way back when. I've got a big stack of the Presbyterian Guardian. That, that tells you about what they believed 80 years ago, 90 years ago. I've got a bunch of the old uh, Pentecostal evangels for the Assemblies of God Church, the Bridal Call for the Four Square Church, all of these different magazines. And, and you go back and you read what people wrote then, what they believed, how on target they were with their understanding of what Scripture was, was trying to say. And then you read this muddled, watered-down stuff today. And you wonder what happened. And you realize some generation didn't have a Timothy. It didn't have a Timothy to leave in Ephesus. And the loss of that Timothy was the gain of Diana in Ephesus. And so false religion, paganism has continued to grow. And and we see it taking place. And we say, well, where in the world are the Timothys? We've got to become the Timothy. We have to be the ones that look into the scripture so that we're not easily deceived because there are a lot of people in this world today that do not want truth to be proclaimed. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, as a nation, one of the reasons people wouldn't want truth to be proclaimed is because as long as the gospel is in the public forum, there's a continual reminder to people that Jesus saves. As long as there's a continual reminder that Jesus saves, he has to save from something. He saves from sin. So that means we must all be sinners. And there's nothing so offensive as to tell a man or woman that they have been born wrong and that they are in need of being born again. To tell an educated man or woman or even a person that's proud in their ignorance that their life is on the wrong track and they're sinful and they need redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. They need to experience forgiveness through his shed blood. You tell a person that they'll look at you like you have lost your mind. So it's a lot easier in Ephesus if if we set Timothy aside and just say, look, here are the things that you should say rather than what you have been saying. Because here's my basic premise. Those folks who were writing and preaching 100 years ago, 120 years ago, traveling across the Great Plains out here, 
Either they were wrong then or we're wrong now. That's all there is to it. Either they were in error then or we're in error now. Because a hundred years ago, people were going out building the kingdom of God, building denominations, starting churches. How often do you hear about somebody trying to go start a denominational church now? Not even interested in doing it. They're not interested in spreading the gospel, holding a gospel crusade or a revival or a campaign. And the reason for that is a maintenance mentality that just simply says, let's just hold what we have. I've talked to people and when they talk to me about churches and stuff like that, they just say, we're just praying that we, we just get a couple of, couple of young families that keep having kids and the church can grow if they just keep having babies. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why not witness to people and win folks to Christ? That's a, that's a powerful thing, too, to let people know about Jesus. Let me look here at chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. He says to Timothy, as, as a man of God, he tells him everything to flee. And what he's telling him to flee is what's in verses 7 through 10. And that's covetousness and the love of money. So verse six, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Say that with me aloud. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It is. It is. Paul said, I've learned to be content in whatsoever state I'm in. Whether I've got one coat or five coats, I'm happy with God. See, if I got one car, or 10 cars, I'm happy with God. If I've got one plate of food or a cupboard filled with food, I'm happy with God. And the great gain is the fact that you have the combination of godliness with contentment. That's the great gain because there are a lot of people who want to be pious and godly, but they're not happy. They're not happy because they don't want to do it. It's like watching somebody fast who really doesn't want to fast. Now, if, if, a, if a person is fasting for something spiritual, that's a good thing. But you ever seen somebody where the doctors told them, I want you to fast for 24 hours before this surgical procedure? Godliness with contentment is great gain. <laughs> but when somebody is not happy, there's no gain to it at all. Okay, so verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Timothy, don't forget that everything you're going through down here in Ephesus is, is about something eternal and invisible. You cannot see it with the natural eye. But he gave the example of Jesus in verse 13, 14, who stood before Pontius Pilate and kept his confession, despite how brutally he had been treated, because he knew that he was going to make it to heaven. So he said to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, grab hold to this thing and don't let it go. One day, you're going to move over there into that eternal world. We have eternity in our hearts now because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have to fight the good fight of faith. That means you've got to keep the faith. The only way you can keep it, you've got to know what it is. It was Jude that said, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. If we want to make sure there's Christianity in Nebraska a hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries, then we have to make sure we know what Christians ought to believe. Yeah. I had an interesting conversation with some some people this morning in hospital and their grandparents, great grandparents were pastors in a particular 
denomination, and they were just talking about what church life was like when they were kids. You know, two or three revivals a year in the church, the kind of preaching that went on. And so I just happened to ask the question. I said, well, well, how is it now in the denomination that you're part of? And the pastor just she just shook her head, just said, it's, it's a totally different world. It's a totally different world. Now, she has the memory. OK, she has the memory. She's preserving the faith for herself. And and she's working to keep the faith and pass that faith on and that knowledge to other people. And that's the only way it can continue. It goes back to Harry Emerson Fosdick back maybe a hundred years ago when he's a very, very liberal man. I think he had a Presbyterian church. He was a Baptist, I believe, but was in a Presbyterian church, maybe in New York or somewhere. But this man preached a message called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And he said, you've got to be kidding if you think in this day and age people are coming to church because they're worried about whether or not the Jebusites were real or whether or not Jesus was literally raised from the dead. And it was a really popular message, and it it, it stirred up a whole lot of controversy. But the problem was people like him populate pulpits all across America everywhere now because they don't believe in the basic fundamentals of Scripture anymore. And if you hold to what Paul preached and what Timothy believed, then you have trouble. Folks, this is how our nation went, went wrong. It used to be a time in this nation here where the politicians looked over their shoulders to hear what the preachers were saying in the pulpit before they ever talked about a law or ran for office. But they don't worry about that now. They're, they'll look at a preacher. They'll cuss a preacher, speak evil of God. They don't care now. But that doesn't change the fact that we know the truth. When God gives us opportunity, we stand for the word of God and declare what scripture says. We do it lovingly. We do it tactfully because the scripture says speak the truth in love. But we do stand. That's part of the fight. Somebody asks you what you believe. Tell them that's what I believe. How can you believe something like that? Well, the Bible says that. How can you hold to beliefs in such an old fashioned hidebound book as that? Well, look, that book was written before I was born, before you were born. If you got any troubles or any problems, you need to look up because I didn't write this book. You need to look up. And if we do that, blessings, blessings will come, come to us. So praise the Lord. Okay. We'll have, have, have a word of prayer. All right. Father, we love you. We thank you. We're so grateful that when we look into the scriptures, we know that we can keep the faith because you delivered it to us. We have it right here in your Bible. So God, every day, help us to guard our hearts and our minds to live for you. We honor you. We worship you. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Amen.